this series over the last couple of weeks, ever so we've been talking about lament, has really got us um, thinking about our emotions, I reckon, and how we feel. And if you were here last week, at the end, as part of our response and practice time, Brett, the good primary school teacher that he is, put up an emotions wheel, um, because sometimes it's helpful for us to name our emotions, and we don't always have the vocabulary to say how we're feeling. And I think two weeks ago when we looked at this idea of doubt, we were really sitting in this space of emotions around doubt and confusion and questioning um, and uncertainty. And then last week we were kind of slightly different part of the wheel of emotions. We were looking at sadness, really, despair, distress, loneliness, abandonment, rejection. Um, Today we're moving into a different part of the emotions wheel, But it's also one of the parts that we don't often talk about and that sometimes people think, not sure you can feel that in church. We're sitting in the space this morning, or we're going to sit in the space this morning, of anger. The emotions around frustration and annoyance and irritation, but also wrath and fury and vengeance and hatred. All of those feelings um, associated with anger The parts of the Bible and the Psalms uh, that express this anger are called the imprecations. Um, And I I think I joked a couple of weeks ago about this, that I love that it's like theologians and writers about the Bible have to come up with this word that we don't know what it means, so it makes it sound like it's something fine. And then when you explain it, you're like, oh, it's that bit. (laughs) Those bits that you read and make you feel really uncomfortable and you think, should that actually be in the Bible? Are people allowed to say that to God? when they vent their frustrations and rail at God and curse their enemies and speak out words of incredible anger and rage and hatred and wrath and fury. And certainly there have been some people who've suggested that that we should just overlook these parts of the Bible. Just pretend they're not there. Actually, my first ever experience with the Psalms was when I was six years old um, and we went to a a Sunday school for a time and I learned to memorise Psalm 139. And to this day, I can still recite parts of it from the Children's Living Bible version. You know, Lord, you've examined my heart. You know, when I sit and stand, you chart the path ahead of me. But it wasn't until about 20 years later that I discovered that they didn't actually teach me all of Psalm 139 when I was six years old. Because in the middle of that beautiful psalm which speaks about God knowing us from before we were born and God loving us and guiding us and leading us, are these words of, away from me, you bloodthirsty evildoers. I wish that God would smite you from the face of the earth. Now, maybe it's not appropriate to teach those to six-year-olds. But do we just pretend they're not there? Do we just ignore them and overlook them? Actually, in the 1970s, Pope Paul the sixth, I think it was, or one of the popes, not that up on my popes, actually said that these parts of the Bible should not be used in the Catholic Church. It was a papal announcement that these, these parts of the Bible, we shouldn't use them in the church, inappropriate. Even C.S. Lewis, this beloved writer who I'm, I'm very hesitant to disagree with, said about some of these psalms, they are devilish. So we just pretend they're not there. But they are part of the Word of God. And one of the things I've loved, I think it's been a bit of a theme this year with our Genesis series and now with the Psalms about what we're trying to do here at Richmond is say this word of God that we have, it is complex and it's difficult, but God uses it and we want to be honest about it and say there's stuff in here that is hard and that we have to wrestle with, but that's the beauty of it, that God speaks to us as we wrestle with it. Some people have said maybe we can use these Psalms in a limited context 
So they push us, um, you know, in certain ways, but we want to be very careful about how we use them. So some people say maybe we should only pray these kinds of prayers in a spiritual way. So we don't pray them against other people. We don't actually have physical enemies. We have spiritual enemies. And so we can pray these kinds of prayers in spiritual warfare against the devil and against the work of evil in the world. And I think there's something in that. Uh, And certainly the New Testament talks about the fact that we do not wage war against flesh and blood, but against the powers and principalities of this world. That there is a spiritual enemy at work in the world and it is good and right for us to speak out against that. But I've been really challenged over the last few years that there's more to these psalms than that. About five years ago, I had the privilege of teaching the psalms to a group of pastors in some, uh, a rural village in Zambia, a place called Kabwe. And um, I was teaching what I would normally teach in Australia on the psalms, which includes an you know, overview of how the psalms work and all the different kinds of psalms, and maybe like a tiny little section for about five minutes on the imprecations, because we don't really know what to do with them in Australia. So we're like, oh yeah, there's those cursing ones, we feel a bit uncomfortable, there's some honesty in them, and maybe we can use them spiritually and move on. And that was all the students wanted to talk about. They had so many questions. Uh, They were like, you know, in our culture, we have this tradition where if someone prays a curse against us, I'm like, what? People pray curses against you? Okay. Um, You know, can we pray a curse back against them? Or we ask God to turn the curse around. And I had no answers for them. I said, what do you think? What are you learning? What is God saying to you? But it really challenged me to think about these kinds of psalms from other people's perspectives. And really the, the best writing and thinking and work that is being done and the most common use of these psalms is not by people who look like me. There are so many people in the majority world who are writing on these psalms and saying, yeah, this is, this is our lives and these are really helpful and God has gifted us with these and maybe you need to learn from us how these work. So I just want to acknowledge that this morning as I stand up here that some of my, a lot of my thinking on this really has been shaped by reading people from the majority world and I can't represent what they represent and so I'm you know, trying to be careful and do the best that I can but, but they are the people who have so much to teach us, people who have experienced oppression and warfare and violence and exploitation in communities for generations. Do not come to these psalms and go, what are they doing in the Bible? They come to these psalms and say, ah, there we are. That is our experience. That is how God wants us to speak to him. And so I hope that we can learn from them a little bit this morning. So we think about this idea of anger. And one of the first things you might notice if you, if you looked at all these different psalms in the Bible, we're going to look at five of them, just parts of them. They're parts of different psalms um, this morning. They're nearly all communal psalms. And in fact, I'll suggest that all the psalms are designed to be used as a community. It's, it's so hard for me and for us to not think individualistically because that is the air that we breathe, the water that we swim in. It's the, in every part of our lives is set up to think me individually and then me as part of a community. But for the people who first wrote these psalms and for many who are using them and finding them really helpful around the world, they are first and foremost community documents. And even when they speak of I, that I is a collective I. It is a community. Uh, And so the idea of anger having a role in the community is really interesting because I think we hide our anger from others. We feel embarrassed or like it's not appropriate. It's impolite to feel angry. And so we kind of either bottle it up within or just share it with one or two people. What it would look like to experience anger as a community. And some of the suggestions are that the community actually has a really important role to play when we are feeling angry because the community can either affirm that anger or maybe temper that anger 
and help us to see that maybe it's gone a little bit too far. Um, listen to that anger and hold it and maybe also reject it if it's seen as inappropriate. And so one of the guys I was reading talks about the role of the community in saying amen to these prayers, that if you come with a prayer of anger and cursing and hatred, the community might say amen. That is our experience. That is what we all think and we believe that that is right and good and godly. But the community might also say, "Mm, maybe not so much. (laughs) And so while you are given the freedom and the space to express your anger, the community is able to say, Maybe you need to do something else with that. Maybe it's not the right expression of it, if that makes any sense. Um, We might be angry at what has been done to us personally, and that might be a legitimate feeling, and it's good to express that, but then the community might say, well, what you need to do now is let it go, learn to forgive. Or we might be angry at what is being done in our world, and the community might say, yes, we need to get fired up. We need to act in response to what is rising up within us. This is who we are. And one of the things that has really challenged me about these psalms is where does God want us to get fired up? What are the things in this world that God is angry about and we are not angry enough about? So strap in because we're going to try and get angry together this morning because I think that is what these lament psalms call us to do. And let me just say this when we think about emotions. Sometimes we're used to thinking of emotions as either good or bad. So there are good emotions, love, joy, you know, kindness, being, feeling happy, and there are bad emotions, sadness and anger. I don't think that's how the Bible works. Actually, all the emotions God has gifted us, the whole wheel is a reflection of the character of God. God feels all these things. There's not good emotions and bad emotions. All emotions have a place. The question is, why are we feeling that emotion and what are we going to do with it? Because I think there are times when joy is inappropriate. There are times when love is wrong. If you love evil, the Bible says, that is not okay. If you are feeling joyful at someone else's downfall, that is not right. And therefore, there are times when anger Perhaps even hatred is the appropriate and godly response to what is happening around us. So so we're going to look at five psalms really briefly, just parts of them, and maybe five different ways of thinking about these kinds of psalms. So the first thing I'm going to say about them, which is similar to what we've been saying about the laments the last couple of weeks, is these psalms are an expression of honest emotion. They are not afraid to name before God exactly what they are feeling, even what they are feeling is Outrage, vengeance, hatred, those darker parts that we tend to hide to ourselves. They are the impolite psalms. They are the psalms that seem to go a little bit beyond the bounds of the things that you would normally say in company. But in prayer before God, they are completely honest that those emotions are part of our human experience and it's no point pretending that they are not Let me read to you from Psalm chapter 10. You can follow along if you want. I'm just going to read small sections of each. Psalm chapter 10 from verse 12. This is one of these psalms. It says, Arise, O Lord. Lift up your hand, O God. Do not forget the helpless. Why does the wicked man revile God? Why does he say to himself, He won't call me to account? But you, O God, look on the trouble of the afflicted and consider our grief and take it in hand. The victim's... Commit themselves to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked man. 
call the evildoer to account for his wickedness that would not otherwise be found out. Because the Lord is king forever and ever, and you, O Lord, hear the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them and you listen to their cry. Even when that cry is, break their arms, stop them from hurting us. That kind of honesty, that this is how we feel when we experience injustice, when we experience exploitation, when we experience oppression, and we can name that before God and before his people. It teaches us that prayer is about letting God in on everything that is going on inside. Not because God doesn't know, but because as we name it before God, he can respond and meet us there. Every now and then in the news, we hear about some things that are happening around our world. And you realise that they're happening every day, but we're only hearing about them every now and then. And you might remember a few years ago, it became really quite public in our media uh, of what was happening in countries like Nigeria and Chad with a group called Boko Haram, who go into Christian villages and steal the girls and take them, well, sometimes the media says, to be wives. They are stealing these girls to be sex slaves to these terrorists. And I remember seeing vision of the parents of those girls gathering together. This is a Christian community to pray for the return of their girls. And I thought, do you reckon their prayers were polite? Do you reckon their cries to God were neat and tidy and appropriate? Or were they crying out in raw honesty at their sense of helplessness and powerlessness in the face of this terrible evil and injustice that was being done to their children? And was God there with them saying, yes, amen, to their prayers? And should we, as the people of God around the world, be saying yes and amen to their prayers? I think so. So the angry psalms, the imprecations, are this expression of honest emotion. The second thing I want to say is that these psalms are also actually an exercise in restraint. It might feel like they're letting it all hang out. But by choosing to take these emotions to God in prayer, they are choosing not to retaliate. These psalms speak out all the things that we would like to do to those enemies. God, we want to see them stopped. We want to see them stricken from the earth, smite them, bind them, break their arms, destroy their plans. But there is no suggestion that the people of God are actually going out and doing that. This is a prayer and the prayer is handing those desires to God and saying, God, this is what we want to do. We want to commit violence in response to the violence that has been committed against us. But instead of committing violence, we choose to bring that violence to you in prayer. And so they are an exercise actually in restraint, in submission, in handing that desire for vengeance and violence to God and saying, God, you deal with it. And there is a trust there that God actually will deal with it. We'll come to that in a moment. But there is a choice to bring this to God in a restrained way in prayer. Let me read to you from what some people say is probably the, the angriest of all the Psalms, Psalm 109. My God whom I praise, do not remain silent, 
For people who are wicked and deceitful have opened their mouths against me. They've spoken against me with lying tongues. With words of hatred, they surround me. They attack me without cause. In return for my friendship, they accuse me. For, but I am... Sorry. In return for my friendship, they accuse me. But I am a man of prayer. They repay evil for good and hatred for friendship. Appoint someone evil to oppose my enemy, God. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him be found guilty. May his prayers condemn him. May his days be few. May another take his place of leadership. May his children be fatherless. May his wife be a widow. May his children be wandering beggars. May they be driven from their ruined homes. We're getting a bit serious here. This is what I wish would happen to them, what they have done to me. But I'm not doing it. I am asking God and saying to God, that is what I want you to do. And I think there is a difference. Some people have wondered, do the people praying these psalms always expect God to answer them? And that maybe messes with your idea of prayer. But do we expect God to do everything that we ask him to do? That would make him, as I said a couple of weeks ago, I think, like some magic fairy or genie in the sky where we just say the right combination of words and we've tricked him into doing the thing that we want. But prayer is actually about me laying my desires before God and saying, God, this is what I want. Now you do what you want, what is right, what is just. When I think about people who are experiencing situations of war around the world, who have limited power and opportunity to respond, but even if they could respond, would essentially be making things worse. There is a restraint that is exercised in choosing to respond not with violence, but with prayer. There is a deep admiration that we should have for people who find themselves in a place where they could take up arms against their enemy, where they could enact violence and bloodshed, but instead they choose to submit to God and ask him what is right in that situation, entrusting their prayer and their desire to God rather than taking those actions themselves. Now, the challenge I find in that is is perhaps there is a line Um, If you know the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a leader of the German Confessing Church during World War II, and he kind of sat in this space for a while against the Nazis, praying, praying that God would bring about their downfall. But there actually came a day when he said, after having prayed this, I believe that it is my duty to act. And he was involved in the plot to try to kill Hitler, for which he was hanged, obviously, unsuccessful plot. So there is a choice to hand it over to God, but it's not as simple as that. It's easy for me in my nice, safe, non-war-torn world to think that you just hand your prayers to God and let God deal with it. It is submission to God and trust that he will then lead you in the appropriate response. So there's an honesty of emotion. There's a restraint in taking these to God in prayer. There is then a dependence upon the justice of God. These psalms are essentially asking God to be who God is. God has revealed himself to his people to be a just God, a God who does not tolerate evil and wickedness, a God who is holy, a God who is wrathful and hates sin and evil. And so these psalms are a cry that God would be who he is. And our prayers are important, in a sense, in expressing our theology, we, we do theology in prayer because what we ask of God reflects who we believe God is. 
what we believe he can do, what we believe he cares about. That is the, one of the aims of prayers, Jesus says, is kind of to align us with, an, with who God is and his character. Let me read to you from Psalm 59. Just a few short verses, but another one of these angry psalms. Verse 10. God will go before me. Sounds nice. And let, will let me gloat over those who slander me. But do not kill them. This guy's a little bit more generous. Do not kill them, O Lord, our shield, or my people will forget. In your might... Uproot them and bring them down for the sins of their mouths, for the words of their lips. Let them be caught in their pride for their curses and lies they utter. Consume them in your wrath. Consume them till they are no more. Then it will be known to the ends of the earth that God rules. In the end, this is a prayer for God's character, God's justice, God's sovereignty be made known. At first it sounds kind of really nice. Well, don't kill them, God. I'm not wishing you'd kill them. What I'm actually wishing, God, is that you would hold them in your hands and they would see the full force of who you are in your sovereignty and wrath. Maybe it'd be better for to be killed than to fall into the hands, as Jonathan Edwards used to say, sinners in the hands of an angry God. I want these people to face you, God. I want them to know who you are, that you are just and you are the judge of the world. You are holy and your truth might be made manifest. There is a desire that God would be made known. I was at a conference the last couple of days and I met a young woman from Bethlehem in Palestine. And she has grown up in Bethlehem and lived there her whole life with the exception of the last few months because her husband is an Egyptian. And as an Egyptian married to a Palestinian, the Israeli government have decided the best way to dissuade foreigners from marrying Palestinians is to refuse them permission to enter into Palestine. And so he left for work. He left their home one morning with all their stuff in it, with all his clothes and their photos and dishes from last night set up and he has not been allowed to return. And she's angry, as I think she has a right to be, because she wants justice and she wants God's character to be seen. And this is a nation that says that it follows the God of the Bible and it is acting with injustice. It is punishing someone who has done nothing wrong to try to make a point about something else in terms of their political scheme. Is she not right to want God's character to be revealed in this situation? She is experiencing, I think, what many refugees around the world experience. We have been torn from our home and evicted and thrown out and we long to see the rightness of God and perhaps the wrongness of what has been done to us, made known. We're getting fired up yet? <laughs> Can I give you a little break? I actually want to play you a little song. It's method in my madness. Just give you a little moment to relax. I'm going to play you a, a beginning of a, a, of a beautiful song. So it might be familiar to some of you, and many of you it might not be. Uh, it's called Zanzanina. Uh, it's from South Africa. If you've heard it before, it might be because it was used in the movie The Power of One and it was sung at Nelson Mandela's funeral. But can we just play the first part of that, Jack? Thank you.
I'll sit there for a moment. It's a beautiful song, isn't it? Appreciate the harmonies. <laughs> Joyful. Love to listen to it. Did you wonder what it means? I'm not going to tell you quite yet. <laughs> but that for me is a great example of what I want to talk about next. And probably one of the hardest psalms in the Bible to understand and explain. Because it is the most harsh words in the most beautiful form which is exactly what you have just listened to. The fourth thing I want to say about these psalms is they are actually resistance. They are statements of protest, and in doing that, they are subversive. And this is not a perspective that I had ever thought of until I listened to the voices of people for whom this is something that wells up with them out of their experience every day. But if you are experiencing oppression and violence and you are powerless to do anything about it, one of the most powerful acts you can undertake is to speak it out, to resist, not with violence, but with protest and subversion. And this is an ancient tradition that actually goes right the way back, obviously, to the Bible, but to the book of Revelation in the New Testament, to the Christian church being persecuted under the Roman Empire, to many people around the world today. And I think... I know I missed this in these psalms, and I wonder how many of us miss this, because it is not part of our experience. And so we come to, as I said, probably the most difficult psalm in the book, the one that people ignore the most or find the hardest, which is Psalm 137. It starts beautifully. Let me read it for you. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. It's a lament. There on our poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the song of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. And here is the imprecation. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to destruction, blessed is the one who repays you according to what you have done. Blessed is the one who seizes your babies and smashes them against the rocks. Is that allowed to be in the Bible? Smashing babies' heads against rocks. That is violent. That is graphic. That feels to us appalling. And yet that is what these people have experienced. That is what was done to them. And that is what they wish would be done to their enemy. Now, again, I think this psalm is all those things. It is an honest expression of emotion. It names the enemy. We like to think we don't have enemies. But, you know, if you're going to actually love your enemies, you first have to acknowledge that they are your enemies, that you have enemies, that there are people you feel hatred, or maybe just irritation and annoyance towards. They name their enemies, honestly. They don't enact violence. They restrain it and take it to God in prayer. They ask for God's justice because they ask for what has been done to them to be done to those. As it has been done to you, us, may it be so be done to you. Or as you have done, may it be done to you. But even more than that, I think this is a subversive protest. The situation here is that the Babylonians have come in and destroyed these people's home. Jerusalem has been burned to the ground. People have been raped and pillaged and cannibalised. 
children have been smashed against the walls of the city till they died. And now these people who have survived find themselves captive, slaves, under the hands of the people who have done that to them. And those people say to them, hey, we hear you're great singers. Can you sing us a nice song? It's the ultimate humiliation. We have just destroyed you and now we want you to sing for us, dance for us, entertain us. And what do the people do? Well, they weep. How can we sing one of our beautiful songs? Because our songs are about the city that you have destroyed and the God who it seems you have defeated. But then I think what they do at the end of this psalm is essentially say, you want a song? We'll give you a song. You want us to sing one of our beautiful songs? Well, here's the beautiful song we've got right now. Blessed is the one who takes your children and smashes their heads against the rocks. Now, the question I have is, do the Babylonians understand those words? <laughs> or is the song sung in Hebrew and so the Babylonians are sitting there going, what a lovely song. How beautiful is that? Because it would be a dangerous thing to say that in a way that the oppressor would understand. But it is a subversive act of resistance to name it. I'm just going to get Jack to play the rest of that song for us and I'm going to tell you what those words mean. Sensei Nina, what have we done? What have we done? What have we done? What have we done? These words, Sosaina, our only sin is being black. Our only sin is being black. What have we done? What have we done? Our only sin is being black. Does it change the way you hear the song? Does it change how you feel about it? If you're a member of the community who understands those words, this is your act of resistance. This is your act of reclaiming the only power that you have, of crying out with the only voice you have left. And this is how you survive. There's actually a third verse to that song, which isn't in that version from the movie, and it wasn't sung at Mandela's funeral, but it is often sung in other contexts. And the third verse is, white men are dogs. White men are dogs. What do we do? when the voice, the, the song of imprecation is sung against us. It's easy to read these psalms in the Bible and think, if I experience that, I might cry out like that. But what if we are the ones who have perpetrated the violence and the oppression and the imprecation is being sung against us? One of the powers of these kinds of angry psalms is to bring us to a place where we might ask the question, who is angry at us? Whose enemy have we been? And what does it mean for them to seek the justice of God in response to who we are? It can actually help us identify ourselves as the perpetrator of violence, as the enemy of another person, another community. It's not a comfortable place to sit in, but it's an important one. Finally, let me end with this. In their subversion, in their protest, in their honesty, in their restraint, the point of these psalms is not 
just to leave us there. I would love to leave us there for a little longer because I think it's good for us to feel uncomfortable sometimes. But the point is to move us forward. The point of all laments is to move us forward somehow towards healing and forgiveness. And the beautiful thing about these angry psalms is they reject cheap grace. They reject doing this too quickly. They reject a theology that says, oh, it's fine. It's not really that bad what you have done. They name it and say, no, this is that bad. And this is how it makes me feel. And this is what it deserves in the hands of a just and judging God. And we will bring it to him and seek his intervention. Miroslav Volf, a theologian and writer who himself experienced war growing up uh, in Croatia, says this, By placing our rage before God, we place both our unjust enemy and our own vengeful self face to face with a God who does justice. Hidden in the dark chambers of our hearts and nourished by the system of darkness, hate grows and seeks to infect everything with its hellish will to exclusion. In the light of the justice of God, however, hate can recede and a seed is planted for the miracle of forgiveness. Forgiveness is hard. If you have been wronged greatly personally, if you are a community that has been wronged generationally and racially and nationally, forgiveness is hard. And it's only when we name the wrong that has been done and come face to face with our enemy in the light of the justice and judgment of God that we can move forward. And that's the message that I think we've been hearing over the last couple of years from our Indigenous brothers and sisters in this country. The Uluru Statement from the Heart is a request that we might tell the truth about what happened in this country so that we can move forward. Because until we name it, until... We name the hurt, the pain, the anger, the outrage, the violence. How can we allow the justice and love of God to speak into it? So there's a lot in these psalms. They call us to an honesty in our own naming of how we feel, even if it doesn't seem polite and proper. They call us to take that to God and to his people rather than enacting violence ourselves. They remind us of the kind of God that we have. They give a voice to the powerless to reclaim their power and resistance. And they move us towards a place where we can have genuine forgiveness and reconciliation.